everybody, and welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Kyle. And I'm Matthew, and welcome to your podcast of music discovery. We are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, your premier source of music podcasts. Pantheon now has a YouTube channel as well. They can find all of their podcasts at, including us, and we also have a podcast channel for just a few of our uh, video versions of this podcast. If you're interested in seeing us drink beer and sweat profusely we do that. while talking about music, please go to our website. That's audiojudo.com. Click on the YouTube link. If you're interested in hearing more podcasts from Pantheon, you can go to pantheonpodcasts.com. Now, one more link for you to write down, mm-hmm. and this one is the most important one. Oh. If you're looking for bonus content and early releases... We have a Patreon account. We do. Kyle, would you like to tell them about sure. it? Sure. If you go to patreon.com forward slash audio judo, or you can get there from our website, audiojudo.com, we have two tiers of Patreon levels. The lower one is called the front row seats tier. It's five bucks a month. For that, you get access to the uh, short episodes that we call judo chops. Uh, you get uh, early access to regular episodes. We usually release those on the Wednesday before they come out. And you also get some little behind the scenes bonus clips, little snippets, things that we cut from episodes. Uh, sometimes some little extended interviews and things, and also a shout out on a future podcast as a loyal producer. If you want to help us out a little bit more and maybe help yourself out a little bit too, for $20 a month, you can get the backstage pass tier of our Patreon. You get everything that the front row seats have, plus a special personalized gift from Matthew and myself. And after being at that level for one year, you can co-host an episode of Audio Judo with us about the album of your choice. So you can mm-hmm. pick a terrible album, you can pick a great album, and we will co-host that episode with you, probably remotely. Uh, that does only uh, apply once after one year. So Kyle, I see you went a little more obscure with your choice this I month. Did. Kyle normally likes to choose uh, diamond sellers that mm-hmm. have reams written about them and force me to find interesting nuggets or about albums that everyone has heard. But this time he has gone back to a decade that I am yet to visit with my choices, right. the 1960s. He went there once before on this program with the Beach Boys Pet Sounds record. It did indeed. That was episode number 36, in case anyone wants to go find it. Tell me, what did you choose, Kyle? Chose the Zombies, Odyssey, and Oracle. A band that you don't hear uh, much about other than this no. record, because yeah. uh, they only released two records two in records. the 60s mm-hmm. before breaking up. Then they released a third one in 2000 that was supposedly a lost album that they yeah. recorded in the 60s, and then a couple other albums more currently that are very forgettable because you can't recapture that 60s sound. Exactly. But this one gets a lot of praise. It does. This, this oftentimes, and and, you know, you were just mentioning Pet Sounds. This album is often mentioned. It's like Pet Sounds, Sgt. Pepper's, Odyssey and Oracle. And it's like, wait, what? And in all honesty, my personal opinion, and I'm going to jump right to the end here. This Uh album is definitely a contemporary of those two albums, but it's not quite at the same level. I think that this one, they did definitely, there was a lot of influences that were floating around because nothing gets created in a vacuum. Right. But I I do think this is a great album, and I do think that it has a lot to say about the time that it was made in, about the band themselves. And when we get to it, the last track on this album is a cornerstone of the 1960s. Oh, for sure. So, uh, But this one gets a lot of praise. It does. It's not an album that I know well at all, other than the one song that we'll talk mm-hmm. about that most people over 35 have heard. It wasn't that revered, really, at first. No. Kind of an indifferent reaction. But over the last half century, it has gained a significant following and is now one of the most revered albums of the day. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the zombies? For yeah. A, a so uh, originally formed when uh, Rod Argent, Paul Atkinson, and Hugh Grundy uh, in 1961 met at St. Albans School. Huge Grundy? Huge Grundy. 
uh, in Hertfordshire, England. They had actually known each other there already. Um, they were joined shortly by Colin Blundstone and Paul Arnold in April 1962, and they played their first gig at a place called the Blacksmith's Arms Public House. They were called the Mustangs. They were indeed point. called the Mustangs, and they began to realize, hey, that's actually a pretty well-used uh, uh There are probably name. like 100 Mustang bands out there at oh, that point. There have to be. And uh, in an interview with uh, Pop Matters done by J.C. Masick from November 4th, 2015, titled There Are No Half Measures, an interview with the Zombies' Rod Argent. Rod Argent said, quote, Well, we chose that name in 1961, and I mean, I knew vaguely that they were sort of, you know, the Walking Dead from Haiti, and Colin didn't even really know that they what they were. Uh, it was Paul Arnold that came up with the name. I don't know where he got it from. He very soon left the band after that. I thought this was a name that no one else was going to have, and I just liked the whole idea of it. Colin was wary, I'm sure, at the beginning. I know, but I always, always really liked it. Little rambling, but... Paul Arnold left his mark on the band. Indeed he did. He went and, and became a doctor. Yeah. But, uh... Pretty much uh, before they even had any commercial uh, gigs. Yeah, got out of there. One thing I do think is funny, too, is the Blacksmith's Arms Public House in St. Albans has what's called a blue plaque. And if you're not familiar, in uh, uh, England and Great Britain, there's a some kind of a historical society that puts these blue plaques on a lot of buildings and sidewalks and structures and things. It's a permanent sign indicating that something of historical significance happened in that place. The one there reads, Stonegate Pub Company, all five original members of the Zombies, 1960s St. Albans Rock Group, first met here April 1961. That's the wrong date. <laughs> I actually met there in April 1962. Of course it is. They formed in 1961. They technically met there 1962. Of course it's wrong. Right? Paul Arnold left, quickly replaced by Chris White. Yes. Uh, in 1963, they entered a song competition that they won. And signed a recording contract with Decca Records mm -hmm. and began recording their first single. And that single will become their first hit. Indeed. And everyone knows that song, too. She's not there. She's not there. Yeah. Everybody knows that, right? It's a fairly familiar song. Maybe not everybody, but a lot of people know yeah. that song. Released in mid-1964, reached number 12 in the UK, their only UK top 40 hit, mm -hmm. and would find a foothold in the States, eventually getting to number two here. It's a little bit of a slow burner. It took a while, but it got there. Sold over a million copies, awarded a gold disc by the RA mm -hmm. or RIAA. In fact, it was successful enough that the Zombies went on tour in the U.S. based on the sales of that single. On January 12, 1965, they made their first in-person U.S. TV appearance on NBC's Hullabaloo. Uh-huh. Hullabaloo. Never heard of it before, but sure. Uh, and they played She's Not There and Tell Her No to a Beatles-esque audience of teenage girls. Apparently, they went absolutely batshit crazy nuts. Yes. Like other popular bands, British bands, they yeah. became very popular in the States because it was way more lucrative over here, but it was a lot of work. They performed for New York disc jockey Murray the K for Christmas shows where yeah. they were contracted to perform seven shows a day, <laughs> which sounds awful. Yes, it does. And speaking of Murray the K, if you want a nice early career moment... You need to check out the Beatles spoof band, The Ruddles. Yes. The Ruddles were formed by Eric Idle from Monty Python, and they released a parody movie called All You Need Is Cash. Mm -hmm. And in it, they have a character who is supposed to be Murray the K. And that character is Bill Murray the K, played by a very young Bill Murray. <laughs> he is obnoxious and awesome, and he has one of the best lines of the movie, because the prefab four are coming to town tomorrow to talk about their trousers. It's just a great <laughs> <laughs> it's oh, it's all ad-libbed and it's awesome. Love that movie. Everybody go check that out. So their other single, Tell Her No, would go on to the US to top, sorry, not top, to number six on the US Billboard Hot 100, but it topped out at 42 in the UK. Oops. 
Uh, they recorded their first full-length album, Begin Here, uh, and released it in 1965. It had some original songs and some rhythm and blues covers on it. The band continued to record lots of songs throughout 1965 and 66, but nothing charted, so there was no new album coming out. Uh, in 1967, the Zombies signed with CBS Records to try to move away from their unsuccessful collaborations with Decca Records, and that led to their second album, Odyssey and Oracle. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to do a little bit of a weird jump here, Matthew. Okay. I want to jump and talk about the cover first. That's okay. cool with you. And the reason being, this might be the first time that the cover design ended up determining the name of an album. Yeah, well. Yeah. The cover art. Depicts several psychedelic shapes and swirls. There are images of people, a couple dancing, a painter, a rear nude drawing of someone with flowery hair, uh, a, a man wooing a woman inside the letter O, a man wearing a top hat inside the other letter O, a Roman soldier, maybe, uh, pointing, uh, and in the dead center, what appears to be a giant, uh, possibly the giant from the Odyssey itself. Could be. It says Odyssey and Oracle spelled O-D-E-S-S-E-Y. That's wrong. In orange stylized letters across the middle and the zombies in green stylized letters across the bottom. The artwork on the cover was created by Terry Quirk, who Argent had this to say about from a 2008 interview with The Guardian titled Album of the Living Dead by Dorian Lansky. Quote, the album's title's slightly high flown, isn't it? As is the quote from The Tempest on the back. It was a very flowery time in all sorts of ways. Me and Chris, Chris White, the bassist, uh, shared a flat with a guy called Terry Quirk, who was a very talented artist, and he came up with this beautiful florid cover that we adored. We didn't notice that the word Odyssey was spelt wrongly to our eternal embarrassment. For years, I used to say, oh, that was intentional. It was a play on the word ode, but I'm afraid that it wasn't. <laughs> so he designed the album, wrote, hand wrote all the lettering, they released it, and then they're like, oops, we spelled Odyssey wrong. Great artist. Bad speller. Right. Uh, he went on to become a poet. Indeed. And a children's author. Yeah. Uh, but I hope not a grammar teacher. <laughs> but uh, go I was, ahead. I say the rear has the track listing, uh, uh, some more psychedelic designs, uh, and some cutout photos of the band. Uh, there's also a stylized silhouette of the band in the background, and the notes on the back say this. Shakespeare said, be not afraid. The aisle is full of noises, sound and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. Sometimes a thousand twinging instruments will hum about mine ears and sometimes voices. Really, music is a very personal thing. It's the product of a person's experiences. Since no two people have been exactly alike, each writer has something unique to say. That makes anything which is not just copy of something else worth listening to. Believing this and laden with gifts of fruit and nuts from the Orient, we descended upon CBS chieftain Derek and with smarm and charm extracted, astonished, the finance (laughs) necessary to compose, arrange, perform, produce, and cover and LP ourselves with no outside help or influence. This is the result. Thanks to Terry Quirk, artist flatmate of Chris, for the cover. Thanks to Will Shakespeare, not flatmate of Chris, for his contribution to the sleeve notes, Rod Argent. Astronished is not, as far as I can tell, a real word. I just looked it up. Uh, no. And I I was like, when I first saw it, I was like, it's got to be a real word. No, it is not. So uh, No, no. It, it is not a... Uh... Real word. Yeah. Funnily enough, too, the U.S. cover version is cropped, so it's just the giant, presumably because there's a nude on it, because we're such prudes. Right. Not a nude. Not a nude. A man butt. No. <laughs> this uh, The album cover, is, it's an iconic piece of it 60s music and culture at of the times. Like, it, it totally represents that particular era. Yeah. So, it makes it makes sense that you would jump to the album artwork. With with right. that glaring well, of a misspelling. Right. So they spent most of June and July of 1967 recording at the famed Abbey Road Studios, 
using the exact same studio space the Beatles had yeah. finished Sgt. Pepper's a few months before. Quite literally, the Beatles were on their way out when they were on their way in. They used the same four-track machine, the same keyboard that John Lennon used on a couple of tracks. Uh, in late July, they moved to Olympia Studios for a short time before moving back to Abbey Road in August, and they finally finished the record in November of 67 after a bunch of breaks. They had a deadline and a very tight budget, so there were limited outtakes and overdubs. They practiced rigorously before heading to, in to record, and perhaps the tight quarters and all that time spent together broke them like it broke the Beatles. Yeah. Because by the end of this record, they had already split up. Yeah, they didn't want anything to do with each other. Uh, they delivered the album on a mono mix, as was the norm back then. But when they presented the finished record to CBS Records, they were told that they had to have a stereo mix as well. Yeah. And which, they had blown their entire budget. Yeah. So they went and paid for it themselves. Yeah. Rod and Chris, who made more money than the rest of the band because they were the songwriters, spent some of their own money to do a stereo mix. And all but one of the tracks, they were able to do a true stereo mix. And I forget which track it is off the top of my head. They faked a stereo mix on one of these tracks. However, thank God that they did that because it is one of those albums that when you listen to it on a set of headphones or with a good stereo, you really hear the panning sounds. Mm -hmm. And it's very much that 60s sound uh, that comes out of it because you can hear the vocals from over here, you know, blah, 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 from left and right and left and right. And the right. instrumentation is different in each year. And it really, I think, adds to the artistry of this album. Funnily enough, too, this album almost was not released in the United States. Oh, yeah, Clive. Yeah. Uh, CBS staff producer Al Cooper picked up a copy during a trip to London. And when he returned to the U.S. and played it, he loved it. He believed that it actually contained a lot of hit singles. And it was released on the little-known Date Records label, which is a CBS subsidiary, in June 1968. Uh, Clive- uh, Davis. Davis, thank you, was uh, basically had said, no, we don't want to release it in the U.S. It's not going to be very <laughs> successful. Well, it was after the first single, Care of Self-44, yes. uh, just kind of like kind of dudded. Flopped. Uh, they did also release Butcher's Tale as a single, uh, feeling that its anti-war message would resonate with a Vietnam War-era audiences. Whoops. <laughs> Didn't. Uh, and finally, they released Time of the Season as right. a single, uh, uh, which slowly climbed the charts in the U.S. to number three on the Billboard Hot 100 and number one on the Cashbox chart, cash box chart uh, which obviously we'll come back to this in a little bit. But uh, it became incredibly successful and the band was already broken up. Yeah. It was, eventually, the album broke the top 100 in the States, kind of buoyed by Time of the Season. Uh, and like I said in the opening, though, while sales were slow at first... It eventually became acclaimed, ranking as number 100 on Rolling Stone's top 500 albums of all time when that list was released in 2012, and now uh, now it's 243 in their most recent release. Didn't do that great sales-wise. No. And I have never heard this album all the way through. Very, like, honestly, not many people have. I thought I had, but I had not. And that might be surprising to you, but it really isn't to me. I have never been a fan of the 60s music for the most part. There are exceptions. But the stuff from the mid-60s and even later never had that kind of appeal to me. Mm -hmm. Even the Beatles took me until much later in life to appreciate and want to listen to it. The Doors did nothing for me. The Who wasn't until much later. Or Cream, or Birds, or CSN. It never moved me the way stuff in the early to mid-70s did. So other than Time of the Season, all these songs were new to me. Some of them I like very much. Some mm -hmm. of them, not my favorite. But one thing with my predilection for uh, hallucinogens... For so many years, you would think that albums of this period would be right up my alley. Yeah. But no. Hmm. Uh, a few of the sounds are wonderful and cosmic and cool, 
uh, but some of them are just fall flat. Yeah. Some of these tracks, and, and again, I really like this album too. And it, uh, I found it again when I was kind of going through that phase where I was listening to a lot of organ music combined with uh, uh, stuff that other people were not listening to at the time, which was, you know, 50s and 60s music. Right. Because nobody in the 90s was listening to that because it was old shit. <laughs> uh, and I found this and I, I fell in love with it. It's also a very short album. It's only 35 minutes and 18 seconds. Yep. So it is a quick listen if you want to listen to it on a lunch break. The Zombies, funnily enough, although there have been some changes around and things, they are still performing. Yep. They were actually inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2019. And in January 2022, they announced they would be touring the US and UK. Shortly thereafter, they postponed the UK portion of the tour until 2023. As we are recording this tonight... They are performing at Maryland Hall in Annapolis, Maryland. What? So I'm guessing it's about 9.30 or 10.30. It's 12.30, so they're long off stage. Oh, yeah, they're done. But uh, they did perform tonight, hopefully. They're all probably in their 80s, so. Right? So should we take a quick break? Let's take a quick break. Uh, and we'll come back and do a track by track. All right. Care of Cell 44. Mm-hmm. What an interesting love song. It's a man writing a letter to a woman, probably, who's in prison. You think it's a man writing to a woman? I think it's a man writing to a woman. Do you? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Rod Argent said to Mojo Magazine in February 2008, quote, it just appealed to me that twist on a common scenario. I just can't wait for you to come home to me again. Huh. What do you think it is? I think it's a woman writing to a man. See, I don't. Pretty sure it's a man writing to a woman who's in prison. I think it's a, the other person's definitely in prison, but no, I think that's it's a woman sure. writing to a man. It's a opening. It's a opening song lead single. Mm-hmm. It's quite lovely song, despite the connections to the Beatles and the Beach Boys. Oh yeah, there's very very <sighs> the good vibrations feels in this, and the sort of clanky ragtime piano. Uh, very. Uh, why don't you guys uh, have a little clip here? Obviously, we're going to have to reference this over and over on the track by track because the Beatles and Beach Boys sounds are so obviously in your face. Yeah. Uh, The sound that they have is about three years too late, as the Beatles had done this by now Mm -hmm. uh, and moved on to more experimental stuff. But putting all that aside, it is lovely. So whether it's a guy writing to a girl or the other way around, we never find out, you know, why or nor do we care. The sentiment in the song is quite beautiful and, yeah. and better than most conventional love songs. There's no talk of unrequited love. There's nothing sinister. It's just someone telling their person that they miss them and they left the place where they used to stay exactly the same. Yeah. And they can't wait to take long walks and spend time together. It's bright. It's cheery. Right? It, the song is completely held together by the bass playing of Chris White. Yes, it is. And the more I listen to this song, the more I realized how good of a bass player he actually was. How much better he was than Paul McCartney. Oh! And I don't think any true music fan will say that McCartney is one of the best bass players ever, if you're being truthful with yourself. He's excellent for what he does, but he was a better songwriter than a player. Fair enough. And, but where he lacks... 
White is very present. He's melodic, but he holds that bottom end together really nice yeah. on the song. White didn't do a heck of a lot outside of the zombies, no. but he was a member of the band uh, Argent after the zombies ended and co-wrote their hit Hold Your Head Up in 1972, Hold a, song, head. a song I'm much more familiar with. Yeah. And I don't know if you've heard the cover songs of this, but there's a great cover song by Susanna Hoffs and Matthew Sweet. No, I have not. That's fantastic. It's I'll really, check really that good. Out. Yeah. This was originally recorded under the working title of Prison Song, and according to the liner notes from Zombie Heaven which is the complete recorded works of the zombies. The song's second uh, working title was Care of Self 69, but their American publisher, Al Gallico, told them they couldn't call it that. Wink, wink. How true that is, I have no idea. (laughs) Wink, wink. Wink, wink. Uh, Rose for Emily. Similarities to the Beatles continue. Indeed. Hey, but it's all good. This song reminds me a lot of Eleanor Rigby. Oh my God, so much. It has an unconventional, uh, unconventional pop song structure. As there is no accompaniment Mm -hmm. other than a piano and a lot of harmonies. Yeah. Uh, Eleanor Rigby, the song is dominated by the string section. Yes, it is. Uh, And it's funny that you say that because I literally have that exact same note written down. Really? Yeah. I wrote that it reminds me a lot of Eleanor Rigby by the Beatles. It's the same kind of story song. The big difference is A Rose for Emily is backed by a piano and Eleanor Rigby has a string section. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) Yeah. It's about a, a, a maybe single woman who has died or will soon die. And there's no one to mourn for, yeah. which is exactly what Eleanor well, Rigby's about. It's actually based on a short story by William Faulkner that was published in an issue of The Forum on April 30th, 1930. It's actually Faulkner's first short story published in a national magazine. Did you read it? I did. Holy, ridiculously complicated, too. Yeah, it's uh, it's depressing and complicated. I read the original and I was like, what the fuck just happened? And then I had to go back and read like a synopsis somebody oh. had written. But basically what the story is, is after her father dies, the titular Emily becomes engaged to a man named Homer Barron, who she murders, but then keeps his body around a la Norman Bates. Uh, and nobody in town knows that. And they keep trying to court Emily and get her to date someone else because she's very wealthy. because She doesn't have to pay any taxes and has all of her family money until years later when she dies. And then they end up going into her house. And they find his dead it's body. So, uh, you got poison, you got dead suitors, you got yeah. all kinds of death and resistance to change peppered yeah. throughout the whole thing. You know, it's a real pick-me-up. Yeah. Uh, weirdly, that's actually a really common story trope around this, like, in the early half of the 20th century. That story of these wealthy old families losing all their money. And I think it's a combination of going through the depression and people not knowing what to do and being like, well, we've always been wealthy. We've never had to work for it. Now what? And I think it's also a lot of people telling uh, stories from the previous generation where it was people in the South losing their money after the Civil War. Mm, ah. And they were kind of retellings of that. The one that stuck out in my mind immediately when I started reading the notes for um, A Rose for Emily was uh, Orson Welles' The Magnificent Ambersons. Mm-hmm. Great movie. Uh, which is a great movie. Same exact storyline. Oh, Not yeah. exactly the same, but it's very similar, similar story. Yeah. Uh, here's a little clip of a, a Rose family, so you know what we're talking about. Can't you see there's nothing you can do? There's loving everywhere. Her roses are fading now. She keeps her pride somehow. That's all she has protecting her from Oh, that's funny because that's the exact phrase. Emily, can't you see? There's nothing you could do. There's loving everywhere, but none for you. 
I took the same part out of it because it's it, it's such a bouncy opening to the song, and right? then it and then it's a bummer by yeah. the end. <laughs> Apparently, there were a ton of cello and mellotron parts that were left out of the final yeah. mix. I would have liked to hear that souped that up version. That would be very interesting. But what a bummer! Maybe after he's gone, Matthew. I don't think it's going to get better. It's another sad song. This one takes more of a conventional approach of unrequited love, but it's wrapped in this mysterious musical sound. The song starts with one of my favorite guitar moments on the record. Those open strings played so nicely. It's very lush, especially for mono. Mm -hmm. But when the chorus kicks in, holy Beach Boys. Oh, yeah. This is, <laughs> this is much more of the 1960s hippie summer love sound that you would get with the early era Beatles. Or, yeah. I'm sorry, early era uh, Beach Boys. Oh, those harmonies. Oh, yeah. And those... all these bands, like you said, were be clearly being influenced by one another and yeah. would have been hard to avoid sounding like each other. Yeah. Lyrically, the song is about a guy whose girl left him to date some other dude, but instead of uh, getting on with his own life, he's going to wait around until that relationship ends and maybe she'll come back to him again. Yeah. Which is just fucking... Right? Sounds crazy. Here's a little clip of it. I feel so cold I'm on my own As the night goes in around Those vocal harmonies, man, are great, but they are definitely reminiscent. <laughs> and I think one of the things about these records from the 60s that doesn't appeal to me in a lot of ways is how invisible the drums are. Yeah. They're an afterthought on these records, and they are almost completely washed out by other instruments and mixed out by the engineers. I grew up in an era, I wanted to hear big drums, you know? Yeah. I wanted to hear John Bonham and Keith Moon and Ginger Baker, and until those guys came along and started to push those sounds to the forefront, did I really start to gain interest in any sort of music from that era? I've always kind of wondered, too, if that's not a recording technology limitation. Like, they just did not know how to record drum sets clearly yet, and if they were in the background, they overrode everything else. So they shoved him in the back and put up the drum, uh, one of those plastic things that they put up around him to block the sound. It's a shield. Like a drum drum shield, shield, thank you. And just said, look, we're going to drop one little tiny mic over the top, and that's going to get mixed at the lowest possible volume. And the only reason it's even there is so that they can keep the beat. (laughs) Like, I I honestly do wonder if it's a technology thing or if it's just that that sound. No, they hate drummers. They hate drummers. That could be a possibility, too. Let's go with that. Uh, This is the first track on here written by Chris White. Yeah. And not the last, thankfully, because he's also a very good songwriter. However, Beachwood Park. Echoes of the Beatles once again. Once again, also written by Chris Wright. Uh, It's all about happy times in the countryside. But I feel like they lost the plot a little bit melodically with this Mm -hmm. tune. Certainly not catchy. No. Kind of struggles to find a melody landing point. I don't mind the B3. I think it's all right. But like the Beatles would sometimes, they got a little lost trying too hard to make different sounds and not focusing on the melody. 
I do like the Leslie that they use. Yeah. I think most musicians listening to this know what it is, but for those who don't, it's yeah. a, it's an amplifier primarily used for the Hammond B3 organ, but can also be adapted for the guitar. And it has a rotating horn on it. Mm-hmm. So it kind of gives it a very like swirly effect. It's very popular in the 60s. Had a bit of a resurgence in the 90s. Yeah. They're very cool devices too, because you take them apart, they're very simple inside. It's yeah. literally a speaker on top of a motor. And then there's a contact device that keeps the uh, the sound being able to come out of the speaker as it spins 360 degrees. The Super show simple, but on, a great effect. The show I'm working on right now has like two. Oh, cool. And, and they're hidden backstage, like behind the curtain. So you walk backstage along the back line and it's just like two Leslie's on That's either cool. side. Yeah, it definitely, the Doppler effect that it creates is a very unique sound. It was actually very difficult to duplicate this digitally for years and years and years. So they remained really popular in recording studios because you can throw up the stereo mics and get the actual sound in a real space, which is pretty cool. So Beechwood Park is a real place. Yes, indeed it is. It's in Hertfordshire. That's their hometown. Yeah. He wrote this song and he, he had this to say about it. He said, it's a real place. My father owned a general store in Hertfordshire and used to deliver to a private girls school called Beechwood Park. I remember driving around there and seeing steam rising off the road in the summer after rain. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, that school actually used to be called the Beechwood Park Mansion, and it's been around since at least 1086. Holy shit. Uh, when it was recorded in the Doomsday Book. Oh. Which isn't as cool as it sounds. Not at all. It's just basically <laughs> a giant census. Yeah. Uh, the word doom, I found out in Old English, uh, Spelled meant law or judgment. Yeah. Doomsday. Uh, yeah. Uh, it did not carry the modern overtones of fatality or disaster. Basically, the, what it is is a great survey that was uh, conducted by William the First, aka William the Conqueror, mm-hmm. uh, because England had been conquered, <laughs> and they needed to know who property actually belonged to. So they literally went through, surveyed the entire country, which is pretty damn impressive for 1086. Yeah, right. Uh, and then wrote it all down in a book. The book still exists today. It's been rebound, and it sort of has that. Um, Ship of Theseus thing going on, mm. where the pages probably aren't original and the cover's not original. They've all been replaced over and over and over again as it's aged and been rebound and everything, but it still exists. Right. So, uh, uh, Beechwood Park, here's a little clip of it. That echoey effect, absolutely, every time I hear it, I think Donovan. Oh, yeah. Like every time, oh, Donovan, I wonder what he's, uh, I wonder I need to go listen to those again. Uh, but again, probably another contemporary influence there. But it's great. I, this song is not one of the strongest songs on the album. No. Uh, by far, but it does, uh, it's not bad. Uh, brief Candles. Yeah, we seem to be hitting a pretty strong pattern here, at least lyrically, as the yeah. band is kind of settling into that lost love. I miss my baby. My baby's really sad. And why won't you come back to me kind of situation. And if you can get past the fact that the opening piano part and vocal melody sound so much like the Beatles, the chorus parts of the song are really, really strong and catchy. And it's pretty clear that they are being strongly influenced by the Fab Four, but they are fighting so hard 
to separate from that sound as well. Yes. It's right there. They're so close to something very unique and original. Uh, and then they just kind of slip back into the Beatles mode. But I, it, you feel like they're just right there. I definitely feel like the piano is too strong in this one. And had they done something else, an orchestral backing or something, Mellotron and cello, maybe right? something different, I think that it would have really elevated this song up above. I um, agree. Here's a little clip of it. Understood so very well the things she had to say. Soon he'll understand that he is better off this way. Breathe candles in his mind, bright and tiny gems of memory. So uh, the title of this comes from uh, an Aldous Huxley work published in 1930. Jintern takes its name from a line from Macbeth, probably one of the most famous lines. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Right. And the book of short stories by author and LSD experimenter Aldous Huxley <laughs> also author of The Doors of Perception, about yes. the LSD experience, and that book name is where the Doors got their name from. My feeling is that the Huxley connection makes more sense in the mm -hmm. scope of the band, the music, and the counterculture at the time. Uh, I've only read one of the stories from that collection, The Claxtons, mm -hmm. and it's not very good. Yeah. But the song is pretty good. And I think lyrically, this is the part that makes me think it's more about Huxley than Shakespeare. In the corner, see his face. The man just sips his drink. Not one feeling does he show, far too numb to think. Mm -hmm. So you're spaced out. Yeah. Like you're floating around, having a good time. Woo. I like it. I would agree. I, it's, it's a, again, another good song on here. Don't read the classics. Not fantastic. It's terrible. Not great. Not the worst. <laughs> Hung Up on a Dream. Ooh, I like this song. Jumping back to a song written by Rod Argent. This one was also released as a single in 1969. Didn't do great. I love this song. It's got this really cool English vibe to it. Yeah. Uh, the guitar parts are simple but effective. It's not too flashy. I could probably do with a lot less chorus on the lead vocal parts. It kind of gets all washy and jumbled, but it's okay. And once again, I hear that strain of them trying to do something original, fighting against those Beatle influences, which are constantly there. Uh, this song is all about the summer of love. Mm -hmm. When the hippie movement exploded onto the scene and how it was a great experience for this guy. But now it's gone and he doesn't think we'll get that feeling back again. Yeah. He's remembering that period as an idealized experience. And for many, that's exactly what it was. But he's also keen to the fact that a lot of those ideas are naive and unrealistic. They spoke with soft, persuading words about a living creed of gentle love and turned me on to sounds unheard and showed me strangest clouded sights above. That verse right there yeah. sums up the entire 60s movement, speaking softly about gentle love and then turning you on to the music of the time, which is unlike anything that had come before it and then getting really high and flying amongst the clouds. <laughs> that encapsulates the whole thing. And he's right, though. We can't go back, no matter how hard we have tried. That was an unrealistic and naive thing to try for, because we know now what the government, you know, the government's in charge. 
and we're just not going to get there. We're not. Yeah. But good try, hippies. Good try. I love the instrumental section right in the middle of this, and it sounds like this. At the beginning of this, he does. Uh, at the beginning of that clip, uh, he does mention uh, uh, men with flowers in their hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas wrote a song titled "San Francisco: Be Sure to Wear Flowers in Your Hair," uh, which was performed by Scott McKenzie, which is probably what they were referencing there. Obviously, that song absolutely one of the cornerstones of like, oh hey, we need to make people think about the 1960s. What song are we going to play? That one, San Francisco: Be Sure to Wear Flowers in Your Hair. Additionally, crowns of flowers or foliage represent love, fertility, celebration, and uh, um, spring in many cultures. Mm-hmm. I like also, that some weird shit in Greece, but you know. Yeah, whatever. Changes. No, this is not the David Bowie no, song. No, it is not. Although every time I see this, I say, changes. No, nor is it the Yes song. No, it is not. Uh, but this is a song that ramps up the psychedelia meter to 11. Oh, yeah. Holy smokes. Hold on for a second, Kyle. Wait. Oh. Is that a Mellotron at the beginning or a flute? Because I have a feeling if it's that it's a Mellotron, so you might be in the clear. But if it's a flute, oh boy. True. Because I know I'm, how much Kyle hates fucking flutes. After a few weeks ago, <laughs> I'm very upset by flutes. Right? Please see our episode I, on Jethro Tull Songs from the Wood to hear all of Kyle's vitriol about yeah. flutes in rock music. Uh, sorry, Jethro Tull. <laughs> they wrote me a very horrible letter. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I wish. The song uh, foregoes the Beatles vibe for a Beach Boys vibe instead. Mm-hmm. But what I meant about the psychedelic stuff, anytime you can work stuff about peppermint coats in. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course, because the music is totally psychedelic, but the words absolutely are not. This song tells us about a girl that the protagonist knew and perhaps loved a long time ago and who has changed a lot from that distant image. Yeah. Lyrics reflect sadness about how time changed all that he loved in her and how far away from the natural beauty and soulfulness she is now. And it's it's kind of about all the changes that happen to all of us, growing up, gaining responsibilities, living your life. Uh, and they're represented in the lyrics with lines like, I knew her when summer was her crown and autumn sad. As in, I knew her in her prime when we thought growing old would be a sad occurrence. You wrote that same thing I have down, the same you? fucking thing. Such a good line. I love it. The whole thing is strengthened by these poetic comparisons with changes of the season. Yeah. The songwriter had this great story about the recording of changes. Uh so they were doing some, uh, Chris White did, we were doing some live vocal harmonies on this, changes. I have the same story. And at one, or, one o'clock, two guys walked in wearing long brown coats and started moving the grand piano. I watched in amazement as they maneuvered it out of the studio and we just kept singing. Whether that's on, actually on the final take, I don't know. <laughs> just, I, where are you wh- going with that fucking piano? What I want to know is, was that John Lennon's piano and he finally sent somebody back to get it? Go get my piano. <laughs> here's, a, here's a little clip of Changes. Now see her walk by Peppermint curve Button down clothes Buttoned up high Diamonds and stones Hang from her hand Isn't she smart? Isn't she grand? I knew her When summer was 
Definitely psychedelic. There's some great lyrics, though, I must say. And if I didn't mention it before, you know how we talked in the past about albums uh, that sound like Summer? Yes. Like Van Halen or whoever. This album sounds very autumnal to me. It sounds like autumn. It has this this foggy rain and leaves falling off the trees and gray skies kind of vibe. It's kind of, it's just very autumn-y to me. I, I had not thought about that, but I would agree with you. I like it very much. I want her, she wants me. Never said that before. <laughs> hey, it's another love song, and it's a first love song. And it's a blatant ripoff of the Beatles. Indeed. However, I do love the bass line by Chris White in here, and it sounds a little bit like this. I close my eyes and soon I'm feeling sleepy I sleep so easy There's nothing on my mind Life seems kinda I want her, she wants me This is totally a Partridge Family song. <laughs> like... <laughs> It is. I'm sorry. Partridge Family. Yeah. Or early Beatles. Early Beatles. I mean, the name of the song could have been the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, The rhythm, everything. Yeah. However, this is really the first time the drums are really exposed and out front in the mix. And now that we can hear them, they aren't bad at all. Drums are played by Hugh Grundy. Mm -hmm. Spent his entire career with the zombies inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame alongside the rest of them in 2019. Uh, Lyrically, songs about first loves. Pretty clear. He's feeling pretty great. Yeah. You know? It's a nice, pretty song, as long as you can uh, look past that uh, glaring uh, pre-fab four thing. (laughs) Uh, This will be our year. Another one penned by Chris White. You know, this song is so weird for me because other than the production quality, Mm -hmm. it sounds like this could easily be a song from the early 2000s. I would agree. It has like a My Chemical Romance kind of thing to it. It's really ahead of its time. And one of the most unique sounding songs for them. Again, they're right there, mm-hmm. just reaching for that originality. The piano on this song, and in fact, all the keyboardy instruments are expertly played by Rod yes. Argent, one of the co-founders of the band. Uh, after the zombies ended, he formed the band Argent, uh, which had the aforementioned hit Hold Your Head Up. Uh, after that, he started a solo career, and everyone used to play for him. Phil Collins played drums. Gary Moore played guitar. Alfonso Johnson from Weather Report was on there. After that, he did a number of one-offs before reforming uh, the zombies. Um, but I really, I love the sound of this song. And it has a really positive message. You know, lyrics like, uh, and I won't forget the way you held me up when I was down. And I won't forget the way you said, darling, I love you. You gave me faith to go on. That's such, that's great. Yeah. That's great stuff. Here's a little clip of it. And I won't forget the way you held me up when I was down. And I won't forget the way you said I 
absolutely agree with you. If you told me this was 15 or 20 years old and not 50 years old, I would 100% believe you. Just update the production values. You you could easily wedge that onto one of those records like that. It also kind of reminds me of uh, the Dirty Projectors, in fact. Just the balance balance of the piano with the lyrics and the way they're sung. Mm -hmm. It kind of, for some reason... I hadn't heard it in a while, and when I started re-listening to the album for this episode, I was like, oh yeah, that's weird. This song was also used in the outro to Mad Men Season 7, Episode 2, A Day's Work. And I was hoping there'd be some fun tie-in, and you go back and like, oh, in that episode, this happened. And, and, and. No, there's nothing. It sounds like a really boring shit episode, if I'm honest. <laughs> uh, I've never watched Mad Men, so I don't know. But uh, if I'm wrong, let me hear about it. Info at audiojudo.com. Yeah, just the synopsis of this episode, I was like, Somebody went to an office and asked about somebody else. They weren't there. Somebody went to an office and asked about somebody else. They weren't there. Somebody went to so-and-so's house and asked about somebody else. They weren't there, and they didn't know the answer. It's like- That's it? That's the whole episode? That's Great. crap. So it's just people asking about other people. Is that the whole, is that the whole series that's of Mad Men? Yes. Just people it. asking about other people? I think so. Wow. Never right. actually watched it, but I assume that it is. Uh, this song's been covered by uh, OK Go mm-hmm. and another band you may have heard of. The Foo Fighters did a version of this, hmm. which is quite good. Butcher's Tale, Western Front, 1914. Yes. A song about a soldier in World War One. that's also generally just an anti-war song. Yeah. Written from the point of view of a soldier currently on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. It was naturally considered an anti-war song aimed at the Vietnam War, which is in full swing, but it's actually about World War One, as is evidenced by its location dropping in the fourth verse. Mm-hmm. Gamacourt, Deepval, Mamet Wood, and French Verdun, all locations that had significant battles during the First World War. Uh, The Battle of Verdun, in particular, is one of the costliest battles in military history in terms of casualties. Uh, That was one of the first major battles to settle on, quote, a war of attrition, Mm -hmm. where both sides were just prepared to wait each other out regardless of the cost, and thousands of lives were lost. Yeah, right? The protagonist in this is the butcher, uh, which refers to both the fact that he used to be a real butcher, like he slaughtered meats for people, and that now he considers himself a butcher who is killing other people for his government. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also has a very apt description of PTSD-like symptoms, Yeah, which uh, when he talks about his hands and arms shaking uh, and that he can't get it out of his head, which I think is, uh, this is about the time where they were really starting to realize, oh shit, that's real. And all those people that came back from World War One and World War II have that, yeah, and we didn't know what to do about it, so we were just like, yeah, that guy's angry all the time. Well, Let him go in the basement and play with a train set. It's called shell like, shock yeah. back then, yeah. But this song was sung by Chris White. This is his only lead vocal on the album. When it was determined that his shaky voice kind of served the song better as a terrified soldier. Also, lead singer Colin Blonstone felt that the material was really too heavy for him, as he was just 19 at the time. I think personally, that's what would have made, made this song even more effective, because it was intended to be a thinly veiled criticism of the yeah. th- Vietnam War. That was the age of kids that were dying over there. Yeah. In fact, in the re-release of this album's CD liner notes, a music producer and 1960s rock historian, quote-unquote, Alec Paolo, uh, called it a, quote, thinly disguised comment on Vietnam. Uh, yeah. And the preacher in his pulpit Sermon go and fight to what is right But he don't have to hear these guns And I bet he sleeps at night
some pedal organ in there yeah. that really drags the song along and makes it very depressing. That high-pitched tone that occurs in the chorus was generated by engineer Peter Vince on the recording console in a similar fashion to the tone used to align analog tapes correctly, <laughs> which I thought was really interesting. And there's a bunch of sound effects that uh, I only captured little snippets of them there, but at the beginning especially, there are these odd sort of sounding sound effects that were created by playing a Pierre Boulet album backwards and at a higher speed than normal, mm -hmm. which I thought was fascinating. There's also been a few cover versions of this by They Might Be Giants. That one, I it's so weird that they did this. Right. Yeah, very strange. Uh, the Immediate, John Wilkes Booze, and the Chrysanthemums. Hell yeah, John Wilkes Booze. John Wilkes Booze. Uh, yeah. Uh, very, uh, a little out of place on this album, but I do like this song quite a bit. It's a good song. Yeah. Uh, Friends of Mine. And sometimes on these 60s albums, uh, they can all get too heavy. Yeah. And you need a palate cleanser. So you break into the happy song about your friends. This sounds like it could be a chewing gum commercial. It almost feels like this could be where the Foo Fighters stole the song Big Me from. Uh, if they had stolen it, which I don't think they did. It could be, it's the Mentos commercial. It's so happy and joyous. And I, I think it's that. my least favorite song on the record. I can see that too. Yeah. Because so, it's, uh, meh. In an interview with Mojo Magazine, uh, Chris White remembered, quote, we sat around and came up with different friends at rehearsal to see if we could fit them all in. Sadly, most of the couples are not together anymore, and some have passed away. Jim and Jean are still together, and Jim and Christine. Uh, here's a little clip of this song. I feel like the last four there are a, are a quadruple. A quadruple? A quadruple. Also, I love the way this one ends with just, ah. Uh -huh. uh. <laughs> Colin Blundstone has mentioned in live shows that the Jim from Gene and Jim is Jim Rodford, a cousin and founding member of Rod Argent's band, Argent, uh, and bass player for the Kinks. He'd oh. also play with several of the revivals of the zombies until he passed away, sadly, in 2018. A little bit of a weird tie in there, but yeah. sure. You want to get to it? Let's do it. Time- of the season. Matthew, what is this? Oh, wait, it's buried on the last track on this album, a song that people use to define and distill the entire generation and experience of the 1960s into three minutes and 34 seconds. Yep. Holy crap. Yep. It's also the album's fuck song. It is the fuck. It's a hand job fuck song. <laughs> totally. It is. It's the time of the season when love runs high. In this time, give it to me easy and mm -hmm. let me try with pleasured hands. There it is. The song pretty much defines the band. It became the highlight of their career, hitting number three on the Billboard chart, and the song that some of the members of the band never wanted to record and hated at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Colin didn't even want to sing it because it sounded so different than what they had been playing and threatened to leave the band before recording it. And thank God he didn't. He came back. Yeah. From the breathy, to the hand snaps, to the wonderful harmonies, this is what the band had been striving for the whole time. This song... 
above all others was where their sound was headed, Mm -hmm. whether they knew it or wanted it to head that way. It also was one of the most recognizable and defining songs of that psychedelic era. The call and response lyrics, somewhat suggestive, you know, it's fantastic. And it's surprised. I'm surprised that it was never banned. Right. I just think it was one of those things where it was just subtle enough that it slipped through. Oof. The keyboard licks that are a little reminiscent of Ray Manzarek from The Doors. But not to the point of ripoff. The bass hook in this is what always does a free boom, boom, boom. So good. And it's haunting in all the right ways. Yeah. Rod Argent wrote this song. And in a uh, an interview with The Guardian, uh, he said, quote, Time of the Season was the last thing to be written for the album. I remember thinking it sounded very commercial. One of my favorite records was George Gershwin's Summertime. We used to do a version of it when we started out. The words in the verse, what's your name, who's your daddy, is he rich like me, were an affectionate nod in that direction. In case you don't know what we're talking about, here's a little clip. What's your name, who's your daddy, who's your daddy, is he rich like me, has he taken any time, your daddy which many people would peg as a modern term actually originated as far back as 1681 according to the random house historical dictionary of american slang it was used by hookers in reference to their pimps or in order uh, to refer to older male customers hmm. which would not have thought 1681 but sure why not song also has a super super short chorus oh yeah it is only it's the time of the season for loving. It is eight seconds long. Oh, that's true. Well, I've never been a fan of 60s music. Like I mentioned in the outset, this song very much represents what was good about it musically. It took chances with sounds, being suggestive without being crude. Yeah. It evoked images and magic and wonder without hitting you over the head or taking hours to get there. It's like three minutes long, right? And I love when I hear this song on the radio. It always makes me smile. Such a yeah. great tune. It's so catchy and it's so... Uh, like I said at the beginning of this, it is used over and over and over again when there's a movie or a TV show that's like, how do we depict the 1960s with something upbeat? They pick Got this it. song immediately. Um, <laughs> in 2012, the UK magazine NME, which stands for New Musical Express, named this as the 35th best song of the 1960s. Hmm. I think that's is, too low. I think that's low. I think that's too low. <laughs> I have a feeling 1 through 34 are probably very British 1960s songs. I should have looked up uh, should have looked up the whole list, but uh, you should you should do that anyway. Maybe I will. All right. But that's it. That is uh, Odyssey, Odyssey and Oracle. Oracle. Uh, Kyle, thank you so much for picking this record. I'm glad you liked this it. This one was fun. It was fun. Yeah. And like I said, it's a very short record. It's not even 36 minutes. So you can listen to it if you have a short commute uh, on your lunch hour or whatever. Yeah, I and suggest. it's worth a quick listen. Yeah, everyone uh, give that one a try. Yeah. And then after you have, let us know what you uh, think about it. Uh, Facebook.com forward slash audio judo at audio judo on Twitter at audio underscore judo on Instagram. Uh, or if you want to get in touch with us directly, email info at audiojudo.com. Mm-hmm, that's uh, you can perfect. Also check out uh, our upcoming episodes on uh, Radiohead, Ooh. Harry Nilsson, ah. Kiss, oh. and Badfinger. We're going to re- revisit the Beatles. <laughs> the Beatles 2.0, Badfinger. <laughs> so stay with us and drop us a line. 
Uh, other than that, we will see you again in two weeks, everybody. Yeah, take care, everybody. Bye-bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.